If you would, um, join with me in prayer and let's pray to this great God that we're getting ready to hear about. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's easy to sit and to read these things, to be familiar um, with these words and for them to not move our hearts, for us to feel like this is a fairy tale, a, a nice story with a lesson that we need to get at the end, but we know that it's so much more than that. This is a testimony of you being a big God, being able to do so much, Father. And I pray that we would trust you, Father, and our trust would spill over into the way that we live, that we would obey, and as we obey, we would see your power more and more and be reaffirmed in the fact that we can trust you, God. Father, it's so easy for us to come here and to be bogged down with all the things that are on our mind, all the pains that we face um, on a daily, and to feel like we can't trust you because life is so hard, Father. And so I pray that as we read your word, we would be reminded that because life is hard, the only option that we have is to trust you. Help us trust you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so as you all know, if you've been with us for uh, any length of time, we're tracking through the gospel of Mark, just verse by verse. And our aim is trying to get a picture of who Jesus is, right? If you look at the gospel of Mark, one of the best things that you can do is the, the a book split up in, into three parts. So in a minute, I'm going to help you see these three parts. Mark 1 through 8, it's all about trusting Jesus. Right. Jesus is going to do all of this stuff through the first eight chapters, proving that he's God so that people can step back and they can say, I can trust him. Eight through ten is all about following Jesus. If he really is God, then he's going to make demands on my life. It's not just that I can trust him, but I should follow him. And then the book ends off with. Jesus dying for our sins and being raised from the dead. And his call is, follow me all the way to the end. And so what we've done here in this, the course of these past few weeks is we've walked through, and this first part is, can I trust Jesus? And up until this point, Jesus has done all of these mighty works and these great works, and people have heard about all of these things. But it's really split up people into two groups, the same group of folks that may find themselves in, in, in this room right now. People are either enthusiasts or they're experts. Enthusiasts or experts. Here's the difference. Say you walk into a room and there's a guy that's a NASCAR driver, that's his sport if you would call that a sport, there's him here. And then there's a 12-year-old kid that knows a whole lot about cars. And they both start to talk about cars, how you make high-speed turns, how much horsepower a car has, what's the best car, what's not the best car. And they talk and talk and talk. Then it gets to a point where you look at the 12-year-old, and it seems like he knows more about cars than this guy. And he argues him down, and it seems like he's winning. And then at the end of that talk, they both come out here, and they say, hey, you've got to ride in a car without a seatbelt with one of those two 
Which one are you going to choose? It's a no-brainer. You're probably going to choose the expert, the guy that actually does it. Though this kid has lots of great words, it's pretty clear that his words are probably the biggest thing or the most impressive thing about his knowledge or experience with cars. But there is a man who not just has words, but he has experience. As I think of the, the church and our church, and I think of um, those of us that comprise our church and Christianity, one thing that I'm burdened by, especially as I look at this text, is it seems like that we constantly find ourselves with people that know a whole lot about Jesus. We constantly find ourselves where the biggest and most impressive things uh, about this big God is often the words that we say about this big God and not the power that we actually see in our lives. That if we serve this, this big God, then there should be big expectations that come alongside having a relationship with the God who made the world. But instead, it seems like we constantly find ourselves Talking about a very, very big God, but living very, very small lives with little expectations of this big God. And little expectations to a great God is an insult to his greatness. So what I want to do in this time is we look at Mark 6. I really want to move us past just talking about this big God, singing about this big God, arguing about this big God. But I really want us to feel and experience the power that comes from this big God and know that we can come to this big God with great expectations and he'll never let us down. Never let us down. Turn with me to Mark 6 and we'll start in verse 1. And the first point that I want to make is this. In order to get to the place that we're trying to go, the very first thing that we have to do is we have to know where we are. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it tells us where we are. And, and I just want you to know this. You're going to do yourself a great service if when you come to, to the Bible and you see things that are done wrong, you don't immediately take yourself out of it and try to associate with the winner. You'll do yourself a great service if when you look and you see the worst things about humanity, you realize that those are the most common things. And that's a picture of you and I where we are. And it's only if we know where we are that we can really follow a roadmap to where it is that we would love to be. And so here's the, the first point, right? How do we see this great power of God? The very first thing that we have to look and see is what is it that limits the expression of the power of God in the way that we live our lives? And the first point is this. Unbelief limits the display of Jesus' power. Unbelief, a lack of faith, limits the display of Jesus' power. And I know for some of us that have a theological grid, that 
that statement is a little unsettling for us, but let me show you right here in the text. Six, one through six, it says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? All of those are good questions, right? The first half starts off very, very, very good. Jesus comes back to his hometown. This is somebody that they knew for 30 years. And it seems as if in the whole time that he was there, he was just an ordinary person. That it seemed like that the way that he lived his life was nothing like, um, I remember way back when they used to do these TV shows, right, where they talked about the life of Christ, and they had this one time, he's, he's 12 years old, and this bird flies down, and it dies, and he picks it up, and he heals the bird, and the bird flies off, and folks are like, wow, that's not what takes place, because he comes here, and they're saying, yo, we knew this guy, now he's back here, and it seems different. So they heard about all his mighty works. And like Tripp talked about so well last week, Jesus is Lord of all, Lord of demons, Lord of nature, Lord of disease and death. Death, the one thing that cripples everybody. Jesus is Lord of all of that. And because he's Lord of all, it demands that you and I obey and submit our lives to him. Jesus comes in. They've heard of his mighty works. They talk about the great works that he's done. And look here at verse 3. In response to hearing about his mighty works and the great things that they've done, what they say is this. <clears throat> is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Back in this day and age, you never called somebody the son of their mom unless you were trying to insult them. Folks were known as the son of their dad. And so here you have Jesus. Verse 1 of this book says, the testimony of Jesus, the son of God. And he's done all of this stuff to prove that he's God. And if he's God, it means that we have to submit to him. He comes back to his hometown and he starts to teach. And we would say, well, what's the content of what he taught? The same thing that he teaches in all of the gospels, repent and believe. He only does these signs so that folks will know that he's God. So that because they know that he's God, they submit to the things that he says. And when they submit to the things that he says, they enjoy his blessing and his peace. And they say, who is this guy? The son of Mary telling us what to do. And they took offense at him. The word in the Greek there that's used is scandal, that the gospel is a scandal. Paul's going to say the same thing, that it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The audacity that somebody would come in and tell me how I am to live my life. People are okay with Jesus as a healer. People are okay with Jesus as a miracle worker. 
People are okay with Jesus as a consultant. But what people are not okay with is Jesus as commander. I tell you what to do with all of your life. And when that takes place, even the people that know the most about him think the least of him. And they take a offense to him. Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. Verse 5, look here. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus heals sick people, the word that's always and often used there is many, 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 many. This is the one time where it says, and he couldn't do any work there. Just could just heal a few. Verse six, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Unbelief limits the display of Jesus' power. Mark is trying to make this bridge right here, right? Listen, it doesn't limit the display of his power as if faith is the fuel that kind of makes things work, right? Um, Y'all seen Elf with Will Ferrell, right? There's this one part at the end where he's trying to get this, this sleigh to fly, but there's not enough people that believe in Santa Claus. So he gets on the news and he gets all these folks to believe in him. Just believe and then we'll have power. He ran out of power because you didn't believe. This is not that. If God needed our faith to be God, then we would have existed as long as God has. But the fact that God was God and existed long before you and I means that he's going to be God and he has power regardless of if you believe in him or not. God's power doesn't run out. So what does this mean that Jesus could do no mighty work there? It's not that Jesus ran out of power. It was that he restricted the use of his power there. And to get that, you have to grasp what is the purpose of miracles. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't just come to heal folks and to make folks better and to make the world a better place. If that was his aim... If his purpose in coming to earth was just to make sure that nobody's sick, no one starves, then do you know what? He never would have died on the cross. He would have kept living on and on and on and continued to do those same things. But the reason why he did all of these signs was to prove that he was God so that now that he proves that he's God, People look at him, and they don't just come to him for the things that they want, but they submit to him, and they obey. The purpose of miracles is to prove that he's God, and the purpose of him proving that he's God is so that people would submit to him and obey, and to the extent that they submit to him and obey and do what he does, they enjoy his blessing and the peace that comes. So what takes place here is you have a group of people that have these hardened hearts, and they've already made a judgment on who he is. 
They've already said, I've come to a conclusion, regardless of what goes on. I've heard of all of these works, but I'm still not going to do the things that you say. And in that case, in the face of unbelief, from Christ's standpoint, there's no need for him to continue to do these, these works there because people have already come to this conclusion. Jesus didn't run out of power. He was restricting his power. And unbelief always limits the display of Christ's power. In the face of all this evidence that took place, they chose not to submit and not to believe in him. And as a result, they're never going to see these mighty works. Right? Here's how this plays out in our life. Just, just to give you a very practical way of what that looks like. For those of us that know God and we read his word and we come to his word and we've seen all of the, the things that he's done. Right? So then guys like Paul or John write these books and they tell us things like confess your sin. If you confess your sin, if you don't try to hide it, but you say there is something wrong with me and I'm going to confess the most embarrassing things about me and what I've done, that the blessing of repentance is forgiveness acceptance in the sight of God, that we'll see God's grace and power and love and forgiveness in a way that we never thought that we could. If you don't believe that truth, you're never going to confess your sin. If you don't believe that truth, you're going to do all that you can to hide your sin. And you're going to hide it and you're going to keep it hidden. And you're just going to continue to be driven to despair. And what takes place is, as a result of your unbelief, you're never going to be able to experience the love and grace and forgiveness that comes from all of those that say, I'm not trying to prove that I'm something that I'm not. I'm saying that I'm sick and I need God's grace. And everybody that says that they're sick and they need God's grace and they need their help, they get it and they see God's power at work. But the people that don't believe that God will actually do that will never confess their sin. And if they never confess their sin, then God's grace, love, forgiveness, the depths of all of that inside of their heads and their hearts, it always remains a theory. It never seeks down deep enough to really change their life. And as a result of their unbelief, they limit the display of God's great power. Not because he's run out, but because you and I have a testimony of all of the great things that he's done. And what we've said is, I've already come to my conclusion. I don't believe it. I'm okay with Jesus as a, a consultant, but I don't want him to command my life. I want to dictate that. Unbelief is not just breaking rules. It's not like God's up there and he just keeps this scorecard. And when we don't do things, we get a, a X. And when we do do things, we get a check. Unbelief 
is, is suicide on the soul. It robs us from experiencing God's great power. And Jesus could, 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 could do no mighty work there. The thing that you see in the Bible is that when somebody's heart is hard and God does these signs, these signs serve more as a judgment than they do an invitation. Pharaoh in Egypt, ten times, God gives all of these signs to prove that he's God so that he would submit to what God says and let his people go. And ten times Pharaoh saw all of these things and his heart was hard. And what took, took place? After his own firstborn son was killed and God gets away with his people, Pharaoh, in the midst of his unbelief and hard heart, chases them down to his death, suicide. Unbelief limits the, the display of Jesus' power. And in verse 6, you see this, Jesus marvels, right? Last week in all of those things that Tripp shared, the thing that came at the end was Christ did this, people marveled. Christ did this, folks were wowed. Christ did this, people were amazed. And here at the end, Jesus comes, and the thing that makes him marvel or say this is unbelievable is people that don't believe that Jesus is God and treat him as such in the face of all of this evidence. Unbelief limits the display of Christ's power. The beautiful thing about the rest of this text is that it gives us the answer and the solution for all of us that find ourselves in this state of unbelief where we feel like it's incredibly hard to do the things that God has called us to do. What's the answer? What's the solution? How do we see the great things of God put on display? And the rest of this is just going to be story after story that kind of gives us the same thing, and that's this. Obedience illustrates Jesus' great power and introduces it to others. Obedience illustrates God's great power and introduces it to others. Here's what I want you to see. I contrasted right? A lack of faith, not with faith, because sometimes for us that word faith gets thrown around. Obedience is, in the Bible, the truest expression of faith. A faith that is just a theory is not faith. The type of faith that is rewarded by God, the type of faith where God's power is not far behind is where this faith expresses itself in obedience. And the thing that I love about the Bible is that this is a book that takes place in the context of real life. 
So it's not like folks obey and there's this upward slant and things go well. The rest of these stories are a bunch of highs and lows. Jesus sends out the 12 and tells them, hey, go preach, cast out demons, call people to repent. They do it and things go well, so they're on a high, cloud nine. And lest we think that obedience to God always means that life goes well for us, sandwiched in between what takes place there, is a story of John the Baptist who obeyed God and went with this same message, but it cost him his life. And then they come back and rejoice in all the great things that God has done, and and, and then God looks at these men, right? Jesus is with them, and according to Matthew 14, what takes place? is that they come back and tell him all of the great things that's done. But in that same vein, folks come back and they tell him what took place with John the Baptist, his cousin. And we see just like that's real life. No one soars and stays up here all of the time. We've seen this play out in the life of our church, where in the course of these these past four months, four and a half months, there's been all of these highs. It seems like God's done great things, but then there's all of this death in in seven years as a pastor. I did one funeral for a 15-year-old girl that I didn't even know. And we didn't have to work through death much. We had this young church, and what took place was folks were always getting married and having babies. Right? So you see, I mean, there's us here. 60 kids back there. 60. But then in four and a half months here, It just seemed like death after death after death. June 7th was the first day that we launched here as a church, and it was fantastic, great. And then my wife and I go home that night and find out that her grandmother passes. And then not two weeks later, the same thing takes place. And one thing that you know if you've ever lost somebody that's close to you is that that pain doesn't just go away. It stays there. And in those first days when you first get the news and it's so fresh, it's enough to turn the biggest extroverts into hermits. And this is why I say the Bible is so rich. Jesus is not just some fairy tale. Look here in 6 verse 30. After John the Baptist dies, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. If you go to Matthew 14, it gives us this same thing, and it tells us, and Jesus heard about the news of John the Baptist. Verse 31, and he said to them, 
Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. What an amazing Savior that we have that knows just the things that we need. Who when he came down to earth, he was not some superman that was void of emotions and feelings. But hearing about this death that was brought about because John was faithful and obedient and did what God called him to do. In some ways, folks, look at this and think that John's death would strike a chord in Christ because it's a foreshadowing of what his life's going to be. His obedience and faithfulness to God it's not going to end up in life like he earned. It's going to end up in death like we earned so that he could give us life. And that's the same thing that he calls for all of us to do. Obedience is costly. It is going to cost us our whole lives. But it is the backdrop against which the, we see the greatest displays of Christ's power. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. For many were coming and going. Look at this. And they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a, a desolate place by themselves, trying to get away from the crowds. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot, all the towns, to get there ahead of them. Jesus has just heard this news of his cousin dying, a senseless death. A death that was brought on because this king made a promise to a girl that danced for him. And he's going to take the 12 to get some breathing room. And they don't even have time to eat themselves. And a big crowd of folks come to him and they rush him. Look at the character of our Savior. Out of all the mighty works that he's done, this is such a mighty one. And I don't want you to miss it. When he went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he was frustrated that he couldn't get a alone time. And he told him to go away and come back later. It doesn't say that for all those of y'all that didn't look at the screen. When he went ashore, look, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Look at this great God, once again, sacrificing his own needs because he has compassion on this crowd. Compassion is best defined as this, when a love for someone else crowds out love for your own self. Jesus looks at them. He has compassion. And his goal is to teach. And so he'll teach them the same way that he did to that first group that we saw in 6. Telling them about how, right, uh, in Mark, Jesus is preaching this gospel of the kingdom. 
Though he does teach and talk about sin, he doesn't end there. But he has to talk about sin. The good news of the gospel is this. That this unbelief that exists in our heart, in your heart, in my heart, that keeps us from confessing sin, that keeps us from doing the things that it's so clear that we should do, that was in our heart and it was passed down to us from our first parents. And in the same way that somebody that's infected with bronchitis can't help but to cough, you and I infected by this sin and this heart of unbelief can't help but to do the very things that are going to lead to our condemnation. And Jesus is teaching, you don't just need one more chance. You don't just need more knowledge. You don't just need better information. There's something wrong with you. What you need is a substitute. Somebody to die for you. To forgive you of all of these sins. And what that means is a life of repentance. Turning from those things that you thought brought you life. And faith towards God. And he teaches these things. And then what takes place is we see a great display of his power. How? It gets real dark. This crowd of 5,000 men, most folks think it's 20,000 people. They don't have anything to eat. The disciples bring that problem to Jesus. And what Jesus doesn't say is, I'll feed them. What he says is, you give them something to eat. Imagine that. Jesus giving us a task that seems impossible. Especially on the heels of these guys preaching all of the things that God has done. Seeing folks come to faith, healing folks, they have a sense of their own strength. And what a sinful heart does is when we have a sense of our own strength, it leads us to try to depend on that strength. And so what Jesus is going to do to build faith is he's going to tell them, you feed them. And the response is, we can't. We can't. Jesus, I can't. We can't feed them. We don't have the resources. If a sense of your own strength leads you to depend on your own strength, do you know what a sense of your weakness does? It leads you to depend on somebody else's. And Jesus tells them, go out. Tell everybody to sit down to prepare for this meal. At this time, there were not baskets of food yet. All they had was five loaves and two fish. Obedience often looks like foolishness, because at the end of the day, if Christ doesn't show up, there's going to be a lot of people that are disappointed. You had me sit down for what? No, 
Christ told us, he said for us to tell you to sit down. We're telling you to sit down. Because we know that we serve this big God. And do you know what God does? Jesus feeds them all. Obedience is the backdrop or the canvas through which Jesus Christ paints a picture of his power. Very practical way that I think this fleshes out here in the life of our church, this church right here. Jesus sends the disciples out to proclaim the good news of the gospel, telling people that they should repent of this in, in order they could, that they can be brought into God's kingdom. They actually go out and do it, and something happens. Jesus has told all of us, those of us that are Christians, our mission in this world, our identity is a witness that our entire lives are to be lived through the grid of God has done mighty works. We need to go and proclaim these mighty works to people that are lost. Question. If God actually saved, if he changed the eternal destiny of everybody this past week that you prayed would meet him or you shared your faith with, how many people would make their way from hell to heaven? Take some time and count and think. I'd wager that there are lots of us in this room that it really didn't take us time to count. Because we thought of this past week, or the past two weeks, or past three weeks, there really wasn't anybody. And we don't see people come to know the Lord. And we doubt if God really has the power that he does. The people that were in this room, that thought of folks, that kind of lived their lives with the trajectory of, no, this is what I do. This is how I live my life. They've seen God's power. They don't doubt that. They've seen the Lord save people. And this power is not just something that's reserved for them. It's possible don't you want that? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of leaving this building, driving back and forth to work every day, seeing the same people? Aren't you tired of coming home and complaining about how godless things are at your job? Aren't you tired? of being frustrated at family that doesn't just seem to get it and wishing that a great God would do something about it. It's not that he lacks power. It's not. As sure as unbelief dims the display of God's power, faith 
as it works itself out through obedience, places us in the very places that God would have us so that his power can be displayed through us. In life, in the high points where we share and things go well, in the low points where it seems senseless that loved ones would give their lives for what God has done. But the very last place that we see this is this. Even in our trouble, obedience is probably the best display of God's glory. Look here at the end, verse 45, it says this. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus puts them in a boat and tells them go. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. A better translation of that could be this. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Right here, it links the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and him walking on water. Remember, miracles are not just Jesus flexing his power, but they are, in fact, him proving that he's God. And so what takes place is he gives them an impossible task so that they have to depend on him. And then what takes place is he sends them on a boat into trouble. If you think obedience to Jesus means a trouble-free life, then you've missed the point of this. It doesn't mean that at all. Do you know what it does mean, though? The disciples in the midst of this storm by themselves, what's the only thing that they have to hold on to? Jesus told us to come here. He sent me here. If he sent me, then he's not just going to leave me. He's not the parent that forgets to pick his kid up from school. He sent me here, and there's trouble. There must be a purpose to this trouble. And do you know what the point of all of this was? Jesus is revealing to them that he's God. In the Old Testament, when God delivered the children of Israel, what he did was he fed them with manna from heaven. Jesus comes and feeds a whole crowd with bread. They get out because God splits this sea and they walk through the Red Sea. 
right? In Job, like we read today, the question was, God, who alone but you can trample the seas? And Jesus comes and walks on water. And the amazing thing is, though he sends them into turmoil, as soon as he gets on this boat, there's peace. Do you know what the reward for obedience is in the Bible? The reward of faith? It's not a specific result that we trust God for. So anybody that would say, if you just have enough faith, then God's going to do that for you. God's going to give you that spouse. God's going to give you that job. God's going to give you that house. They haven't read Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about faith. And the first half is, hey, there's those here. They had faith. And God did all of these great things. Ah, but then there's a group of folks. They had the same faith, but they were sawn in two, burnt at the stake, eaten by lions, beheaded. What do they both have in common? They received the commendation of God, the approval of God. They received God himself, and where God is, there's peace. And there's two responses towards that. Both are made up of the same words. But for those of us that hear, the solution to everything that goes on in your life is you just need a greater sense of God's presence that he's there. Sometimes it'll give you victory. Sometimes it may be the cause of your death. Often it leads us into trouble, but trouble is the great revealer of the fact that we need God and God has provided himself. And there's certain folks that, that'll say, that's it, exclamation mark, that's it. That's what I've searched for. That's what I've longed for. I've really just wanted to know that God was with me. Or then there's folks that'll say, that's it, with a question mark. That's all? But I wanted more. I really wanted something else. And the people that say, that's it, the type of a heart that would say, that's it, is saying, God's not enough. I really put my faith in stuff and in the stuff that he gives. But for those that say that's it, the expression of that's it is this unrelenting pursuit of Jesus as not just my Savior, but my God. He dictates where I go, and as he dictates where I go, I see his hand at work. Come down here to the end with me as we close out our time. If unbelief limits the display of Christ's power and belief expressed through obedience highlights or illustrates his great power, then what we find is this. Expectant hearts experience extraordinary power. Expectant hearts, those who have hearts that clamor to be in Jesus' presence, experience extraordinary power. 
It may not look like things, but it always looks like wholeness. 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about, look, the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made whole. Jesus comes to the land and what takes place is he meets a group of people that are different than that first group that we talked to. Christ came in and that first group looked down at him. They felt appalled that somebody else would come and dictate the way that they lived their life. This last group of folks are expectant of this great God. They're expectant of being made whole. They know that they're sick. They're not trying to deny that. They know that Jesus alone provides the answer. And so what they do is they flock to him. And there's this picture of of folks clamoring after, just trying to touch the fringe or the tassel that's at the bottom of his cloak. And so you have a bunch of people that don't look down on Christ, evaluating the things that he says to him, but you have people that flock to him on their knees and they look up to him. They trust in him for hope. And those that barely get there, those that barely touch him, are made completely whole. And it's a picture of his extraordinary power. And those that have an expectant heart flock. Now what this is not saying, it's easy for us to look at a thing like this and say, well, I've trusted God for healing. I've trusted him for deliverance. I've had all of this faith and I didn't get what they had. I feel sick right now and I need him to heal me. We have to remember the gospel of Mark is being built. Jesus is only doing these signs, making people physically whole to point them to a deeper reality. There are people in this town that did not have physical ailments. Everybody in this town had a spiritual ailment. So as Jesus is healing folks as a parable to talk about his power, that last line, and as many as touched him, everybody that came was made whole. And that's what makes Jesus so precious. Here in the world that we live in, things are precious because they're rare, because there's only a few of those. Right, So with like shoes that come out or baseball cards or things like gold, diamonds, they're rare 
because there's a limited amount. Whenever there's an abundant amount of something, it's not rare. There's certain baseball cards that'll never sell out because nobody cares about them. What Jesus has is precious because the availability is so much. There is no running out of it, but there's this real need. Everybody has this need. All of us have this need for him. There is never a person, right? If the whole world right now were to run to Jesus and to say, Lord, I'm desperate. Lord, I've lived a life where I've delved into things that caused me despair. And I've tried to solve the despair that I had by doing more of the very same thing that brought me that heartache. And I'm at my wit's end. Father, I'm desperate. Heal my heart. If the whole world were to say that at the same time right now, as many as came to him would be made whole. It never runs out. It never empties. It's never sold out. Not because people don't need it, but because they think that they think that they don't need it. Expectant hearts that run to a great Savior see extraordinary power. Our God has called us to believe him for very big things, to pray very big prayers, and to expect much from him. And I just want us all to know that as many as come to him will be made whole. As many as are brought to him will be made whole. There's an urgency that's shared here at the end of verse 6 or chapter six, is an urgency. People are urgent to try to get to Jesus because at this point in time, they know that he's on the move. He's not going to be there for long. So we got to get to him. In the day that we live now, the urgency has been turned on its head. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, if the whole world would trust in him. He's paid that price. And now it's available to all at any point in time right now. The urgency is not that his forgiveness may not be here for long. The urgency is that you may not be here for long. We serve a great 
great God that has never met a sickness that he couldn't heal. He's never met an addiction, a problem, a propensity, a proclivity that he couldn't completely undo. And my prayer is that you that are here, that we all as a church would have expectant hearts as we approach him and that we would witness extraordinary power in a very, very real way. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would forgive us for being so faithless. I pray the testimony that we see in your word would be the thing that drives us to you. God, that we would flock to get you to take a hold of you, Father. Lord, help us not to be content with life as we know it. Remind us of the fact that, Lord, we aren't here for long, and it's not meant to scare us, but it is meant to sober us, Father. Help us not to be content with living these little lives where we settle into struggling in the way that we do, Father. Remind us that where you are, there's peace. And you've provided access to yourself through your great son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.